Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we're talking about philanthropy within an Indian context, and it's a pleasure to welcome onto the show Devol Sungvi, who is the co-founder of Dasra. Uh, Dasra is one of India's leading strategic philanthropy foundations. We're going to be looking at philanthropy within India, and we're going to be looking at the importance of bringing in voices from the local communities that are being served by philanthropic interventions. So how do we get local voices? How do we ensure that local voices are heard during the decision-making process when it comes to grant-making? Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. So as I mentioned a minute ago, today it's a pleasure to welcome onto the show Devol Sungvi, co-founder of Dastra. Devol, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to be here. Excellent. Well, welcome onto the show. You're out there in India. I'm here in the UK. Let's kick off by finding out a little bit about uh, Dasra. What's Dasra all about? So um, Dasra itself means enlightened giving in Sanskrit. Uh, we, we chose this name because we realized that there's a lot of giving that's been happening for centuries in the country. But uh, enlightened giving, trust-based giving, um, I think these are the what we at least as Dasra sort of consider what enlightening giving means. It, it really encompasses sort of looking at communities uh, that uh, and community leaders who've created solutions on their own uh, to solve an injustice they saw in front of them. Uh, these leaders did not wait till they made their first million or billion. They didn't wait till they reached a certain age and their kids were off to college. They didn't wait till they had some sort of life milestone moment. These are individuals who saw something in front and said, we have to make a difference now. And, and for Dasra, that's why we felt sort of enlightened giving is that it's listening to the community, it's backing them to the till and really enabling them to achieve their dreams and aspirations through strategies that they implement versus what we think is the right way to go. Mm. And how do you how do you work with your uh, so do you have uh, do you have member foundations that work with you do you have partners do you um, are they clients of yours how do you help the whole philanthropic sector in India go forward and so uh, we started out really being an NGO for NGOs and and we still do that and so really the goal was how do we start finding phenomenal leaders on the ground and helping them with their missions and visions. Um, uh, 22 years ago, when we started out, management in the NGO sector was seen as a bad word. And unfortunately, even now, uh, that trend continues, um, which is quite disappointing. And so for us, it was if these individuals have taken literally um, you know, a, a, a problem and have gone to sort of solve that problem, how do we then understand what their needs are as leaders, what they need to do uh, to thrive, to scale, to survive? Um, and then how do we really back them to enable that to happen? And so 
a lot of our work today, and even when we started out, really is on the ground working with these groups. Mostly the NGOs that we work with are organizations that have started from India, uh, and many of them are from proximate leaders, individuals who've had lived experiences from the communities they serve. And really our view was, while they know their intervention in the community phenomenally well, what they may not have, like many entrepreneurs, is perhaps skills in the areas of accounting or strategy or HR or impact or governance or fundraising. And, and so how do we bring, depending on that leader, these elements to them? And, and so for the first decade, this is primarily all of what we did. And, and slowly, philanthropists, foundations, corporates started coming to us and said, look, these are the groups such as a Magic Bus or an Ungan Trust or a Vilgro that have scaled tremendously from sort of 99 to 2009. How does Dusra sort of do that? What is sort of the magic? And, and can you help us with our own strategies to create that same level of impact that you've been able to do over the years? I'm with you. So would you say you're like a management consulting firm? Um, the reason why we don't you know, consider ourselves a, a management consultant is because typically management consultants, why they're, they're amazing, they come in, they create a strategy and help a management team do that. But usually that management team then is equipped to then implement that strategy long term. I think for us, that's sort of how we start the relationship and, of course, helping the organization create sort of that aspirational statement and where they want to go, but then really get into the weeds of helping them not just raise capital, but also being on the front lines with them, enabling them to implement the program. So typically, we'll work with an organization for five to seven years, uh, really enabling their dreams to be achieved, helping them firefight along the way, because all business plans at the end of the day are as good as the paper that they're typed on uh, and, and really sort of hand-holding them through that process. And so that similar sort of, I guess, approach that we've had with NGOs, we've now had with foundations. And so we've been very lucky to work with many families within India and globally, again, with a similar sort of five to seven year trajectory, helping them with, with their strategies, with the implementation, creating impact on the ground, and more importantly, having those regular feedback loops so they can innovate uh, and modify as situations on the ground change. I'm with you. And you didn't, you didn't use the term, but I guess it applies, which is capacity building? 100%. A hundred percent. And tell me, so I, re I remember we were having a conversation a, a little while back and, um, and we were just talking more broadly about philanthropy, India, what's the layout look like? And one of the things that, uh, that we touched on was that power imbalance that is a topic of increasing prominence and relevance. And uh, give us a little bit of your take because you're out there very, very closely involved with the philanthropic landscape in India. Uh, how is that whole conversation viewed from your vantage point? And, and so I think not just in India, but I think globally, unfortunately, it took a once in a century pandemic to highlight a lot of the issues that honestly have been there for, for generations. Um, and so whether it is, um, you know, in the Indian context, at least, whether it was the millions of migrants being forced to walk home thousands of kilometers with family in tow when the lockdown happened March 2020, uh, to the 92% of rural children in our country who have not attended online school for the last two years and, and, and physical school just hasn't been open till, since that time. And so really figuring out what, what can we do as a society, I guess, to, to be more thoughtful about those who have never had the same rights, the same resources, the same privileges of healthcare and, and a roof over their head or sanitation or education and, and really getting 
into the weeds of listening to them more. I think all of us as a society, to a certain extent, have not done a good job at realizing that it shouldn't be acceptable for individuals in our communities to live in slums without toilets, without access to electricity, without access to running water, when a lot of us have that access. Um, it shouldn't be okay for, you know, in the US or the UK context for, for these racial sort of um, motivated um, police beatings or, or discrimination that's happening on multiple levels. It shouldn't be okay that a large part of our society do not have the privilege to do what you and I have been able to do over the last two years, which is work, get paid, and be in the safety of our homes over Zoom when so many others have to sort of be on the ground. And, and so I think for us, it's really was an awakening to a certain extent and realize, number one, in the last you know 22 years of our own existence, clearly we didn't do a good enough job at focusing on the most marginalized of communities, realizing that many times the solutions that are required to support them are not as linear, they're not as scalable, they're not as easy to understand, and it takes just a longer-term perspective. And so we, just as an organization, just went back to the drawing board and said, look, we need to bring the community voice up front uh, day in and day out and actually look at the more complex solutions, which may not get you the scaling numbers that you all want, uh, but but will actually create more sustained and long-term changes on the ground by empowering the communities that we all serve. I, I think number two, also just realizing that most organizations, as you were saying, foundations and givers, uh, again, have not have lived experiences. They are so far removed from the communities they're trying to support Yet they take a lot of these decisions, whether they're in boardrooms abroad or even boardrooms in Mumbai or, or Delhi. And, and, and so how do you bring that community voice up, not just to be an active listener, but how do you actually put them in, in places of decision making where you're, you're giving them not just a voice, but actually control over how some of these funds are deployed and how development kind of sort of occurs in, in, in country. And, and I think that's another area that... Uh, we still have a long ways to go, but we feel that that needs to happen. And then I guess the third is really just, and this is what we were doing from day one, which is, you know, find the organizations, do, of course, the diligence, ensure that, uh, you know, they meet whatever legal requirements and compliance requirements, but then really, like you do in the for-profit world, back that entrepreneur to the till. And that includes giving them capital, which is unrestricted, allowing them to make changes, depending on what they see in the community, providing them support, not just with funding, but, but managerial support, capacity building, as you said, um, access to other networks. And really the goal should be to enable them to outgrow you, um, not for them to be a vendor of your programs. And I think that mindset still very much unfortunately exists both in a global context with many foundations thinking I need vendors for a particular program. And you know, once I'm done with A, B, and C, I will stop funding them. Or even individuals thinking I know the solution, even though they've never lived in those communities or seen all of the other sort of issues that exist uh, that, that have to be focused on. Yeah. You touched on so many different things, but two things that struck me. Uh, one is about bringing those voices into the conversation and not just into the conversation, but into the decision-making process. And the other you, you touched on as well about unrestricted funding. And that's another thing that's also making the rounds quite a bit about trust-based philanthropy and how do we how do we use that to empower. Let me touch on the former one. How do we get some of those voices into the boardroom? And what does that actually look like for one of these huge foundations that's based out in New York or Geneva? 
And so one of the things that we've done in the last year, at least, uh, and again, we have a long way to go, so in no way will I say we've solved it. Uh, but, but one of the things we've done, at least, was um, really go out to organizations that have been on the ground in communities for multiple years, if not decades, and ask them for recommendations of partners. And honestly, from their recommendations, um, it's not a grant proposal that they're filling out. It's not um, you know, 50 pages of you need to do A, B, and C, but it's saying that I've worked with this partner or this individual uh, or this organization for many years. This is what I know they're good at. This is why I trust them. And then not at all blindly because you have somebody who can vouch for them for many, many years, more than even a proposal process, but then you fund them. Um, and, and so we've been able to actually distribute $10 million worth of funding to 150 organizations in the last nine months with this approach. Um, and all the recipient organization needs to do is give us three bullet points on what they're trying to do with the money. Um, and then every quarter, they come back to us and saying, look, this is what we've used the money for. This is what we're doing. And this is where we're changing things. And so it's unrestricted funding. It's listening to communities and having them decide, uh, you know, who should be funded um, and just being there and getting sort of that organization's back. Because if anything, these last two years have been so, so difficult for all of us. And if any of us thought we would implement our programs, which were designed in 2018 or 19 and are still on that pathway, clearly we're not doing what's needed today. And, and so I think a similar approach can be used at a global level, which is getting your trusted partners and even partners you don't know to sort of serve on um, selection committees, to recommend, to, to, to sort of use word of mouth and, and really trusted experiences on the ground, perhaps far more than a results framework that's being designed and then being determined of whether or not we support this particular initiative. Yeah. And you did say to me, though, wouldn't it be nice if we had more of that decision making actually happening in India? So not so much in a boardroom elsewhere, but in India. Does that make a big difference? A hundred percent. And I think even from the Indian context, and again, this is where you know we still as thus need to improve upon, improve upon, is you know also having people who are in the field. So even, I mean, I'm privileged to sit in Mumbai. Uh, but in a country with 1.3 billion people, I should not be making decisions here. So getting, again, individuals who've worked in certain regions or states and have that expertise and experience and having them suggest organizations on the ground and, and really having them, to your point, be part of the decision-making process. And I think that is so, so critical. And, and so to give you examples, uh, we, we have been working quite closely with a group called Goonj, uh, that has been in operation since 1999. They've done phenomenal work with disaster relief over the years and really mobilizing communities across the country. And given climate change, disasters are just increased more and more. And mostly the most marginalized communities, as we all know, are most affected by disaster change, by climate change, excuse me, because they're the ones who unfortunately are living in places and pockets uh, of the country which are just affordable for them, which means our low-lying regions are prone to various risks and, and those risks have just gone up. And, and so in Gunja's efforts, they have 500 NGO partners across India. And for us, it was very easy to pick up the phone and saying, look, you recommend partners that you think are doing good work and we will support them. 
and, and, and I guess the same sort of philosophy is what can happen and not just again in Mumbai or Delhi, but ideally going to the communities and to the areas that we all want to serve and getting leaders from those communities to make recommendations and, and trusting their recommendations. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, one of the things I've seen a lot of change in and progress in as of late is the way we collaborate with each other, the way different foundations collaborate with each other. Um, some do it you know, at arm's length, others are set up an entirely separate vehicle where both both or many parties are, are, are constituents and then they, they use that vehicle to, to act as a unified force. Um, long story short, there's just a lot of innovation in terms of how people are collaborating, how foundations are collaborating which I think is fascinating. What are the different methods or do you see different methods? And I'm thinking about thinking creatively here uh, of ways that we could get these voices into the decision-making progress. So you're, you're highlighting here how we can have partners who recommend trusted entities who are within their periphery. Um, but what else can we do? What, what are some of the, the, the forward-thinking things that we can do? And, and so about two years ago, we actually brought together 20 foundations in India, um, about 10 that were based in India and headquartered in India, 10 that were global foundations that operate here. And really the conversation was this, which is what can we do? We all have, each foundation may have their own sector area. They may have their own region area, and that's fine. That, that is what it is. But how do we start as a group of foundations or a community of foundations, which is what we called it, uh, start sharing our diligence, start open sourcing the knowledge that we have, start, for example, using one set of financial compliance diligence that we all then can trust uh, versus each of us having that NGO jump through those 10 different hoops. Uh, and of course, there will be conversations that should be confidential, but there's a lot that actually can be shared. So you're not also sort of creating this competitive market, uh, which doesn't need to be there, which actually at the end of the day, wastes more time of the NGOs because then they're having to prove themselves over and over again, and to a certain extent does not allow other newer funders to come on board. Um, and so as I spoke about briefly earlier, it is getting more difficult for foreign funding to enter India. And therefore there's a greater need for domestic philanthropy to grow, scale and flourish. But most of those philanthropists have full-time jobs already. And so why is it that they have to wait, for example, to make smart decisions in the fields of health or sanitation or environment when there are existing foundations who have 20, 30, 40 years of experience in India who've been doing this for, you know, like the Tata Trust generations, in fact, 125 years, how come there's not an open source of all of that quote unquote intelligence, which then allows newer givers to enter the market and be as smart as these more existing donors who may have greater staff in place, greater budgets in place, greater research. And, and, and even for us as Dasra, when we started, for example, research reports in 2009, we mandated that all of our research reports we do for regardless of who the donor was, would be open source and put online because we realized that otherwise you're just not sharing information. Um, and our research has not just guided philanthropists, they've actually guided a lot of NGOs to say, oh, I didn't realize there were another 36 NGOs doing this particular intervention against child marriage, and I can work with them. And so how do you sort of create, I guess, a, a, a greater sense of community versus competition 
and just open source far more than we are because we have that knowledge, but we're keeping it with just a few, the elite, uh, those who have the capital to spend on research, where it should be mandated that all of this is used by by, by public good. Yeah. Are you, um, here's an interesting bit I always, I, I always find fascinating, and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think definitely share the knowledge and view it as a public good. Um, is the knowledge that's being shared only reflecting the positive success stories and how candid are people with the failures that inevitably happen which are also invaluable learning uh, experiences how how are you finding the mindset in in your neck of the woods and so i remember 15 years ago um helping um a donor agency based in the u.s uh to support their NGOs here in India with capacity building and also then setting up um, uh, an array of donor visits. Um, and at that time, uh, to your point, NGOs were used to when donors would come, uh, if they were, for example, organizations focusing on children, they would have the children recite poetry, uh, maybe do a performance, um, garland uh, these donors with flowers. Um, and, and I remember at that time, us telling the NGO uh, that, look, actually, this is a critical meeting for you to talk about your three topmost challenges. And the NGO leaders were shocked. They were like, if we talk about challenges, this is not going to work. We're not going to get funding. What are you talking about? And we said, no, but these people are coming, these donors are coming here to actually see what you're doing on the ground. And honestly, while the performances may be okay, if you're not speaking to them about your challenges, they're not actually able to either increase their aid, they're not able to bring sort of learnings from other groups who've had similar challenges, or uh, in, in this case, because many of the philanthropists were accomplished business leaders, they're not also able to, to sort of express that in their own businesses, they have the same challenges. And this is something not to be afraid of, but to speak about. And, and so we've, I guess for you know time in and time out, we've always encouraged NGO leaders to speak about those challenges. And it's difficult, uh, even in a form with just NGOs, it takes a while for them to feel that there's trust enough to speak about their challenges and they won't be sort of taken out of context. Uh, but in, for example, the leadership programs that we've run, and we've had about 800 NGOs graduate through that, these cohorts of NGO leaders are speaking about all of their challenges and realize that's actually where they're getting greater value versus just the successes. I, I think from donors, and we spend, like I said, lots of times with families, we, we also push them to say, if you're funding an organization because they're doing good work, also talk to them about the top three challenges they have and how your funding or expertise or networks can come and help solve those challenges in addition to the programmatic work that's being done. And, and, and I guess with, with um, I guess newer philanthropists we're seeing, they actually are more excited or as excited about writing the check as well as providing this level of guidance. Uh, but they're also humble enough to know that they have to understand the community, uh, the heterogeneous sort of circumstances that these organizations are working with, and not all solutions are transferable from the corporate experience. And, and but, but I think it's building sort of that trust-based bond where both of these, the donor and the NGO are together working towards impacting the community for the long term, I think is critical. And this apprehension that you talked about, about those possible trustees being candid with the three main challenges that they face, <clears throat> what about the appetite for being completely candid um, from, from the funding community? So those big philanthropies in India, 
Are they happy to talk about some of their failures? Because, you know, sometimes image is important and uh, people are a little bit, uh, you know, apprehensive, I guess. Just Yeah, no, very, very few are. Um, I think very few are able, uh, are open and willing. I mean, Roini Nilakani, for example, is one who's an exemplar and she definitely has sessions with her portfolio to talk about the challenges. But uh, there are definitely many funders that exist, global funders as well as Indian funders, uh, who are, again, very caught up on a results framework that was developed three, five sometimes even seven years ago, um, and not really providing the flexibility for the organization to learn and take the risks required to actually impact the community. Um, and, and so it is still something that is somewhat frowned upon. It is not something that uh, is celebrated. And again, I want to be very clear. It's not that we're celebrating failures. I mean, not all of us should be like, we failed in everything we did, but it's being open about challenges and, and, and helping and, and being I guess, as a funder, realizing it's your responsibility, not just to write the check, but also to enable your NGO management team and the communities they serve to overcome those challenges. And, and I think that has to be part and parcel of that engagement. Um, otherwise, you're not doing actual justice to, you know, the real work at hand. Yeah. What about on the policy front? How do you ensure or what are the mechanisms that you could explore to ensure that you're pushing out your research to the policymakers at the decision-making time. And again, the fact that we've been doing this for 22 years now and have just been very, very lucky to have a, a host of phenomenal NGO partners on the ground, uh, this has been a big part of what we've been doing for a while, which is, um, again, a research report, even including ours, and I apologize, it's 70 pages, it's a lot of reading, there's graphs and you know we've tried to keep it uh, as engaging as possible but it's a lot um and and so so i think it's um uh, our partners for example uh with the nfssm alliance which is the national fecal sludge and septage management alliance and fecal sludge uh treatment is the treatment of shit um and and so this particular uh, alliance has multiple NGOs who've been working in India for decades on this particular issue, and they come together to share their own sort of um, understanding of how to solve some of these problems, as well as work very, very closely with government. Um, the same thing with uh, the, there's a Dasra Adolescence Collaborative that we run focusing on the empowerment of adolescent girls, which we spoke about briefly last time. Uh, and, and within that, we work very closely with both state and central governments uh, in uh, jointly sort of coming up with how can we pilot programs that affect two or three of the policies that the government's implementing? How do we give real time feedback loops? How do we improve upon that by the hundreds of organizations we've worked with in the community of practice there and really just bubble this up so it's, it is again, government, philanthropy, as well as the civil society organizations, again, all working in tandem. Uh, certain sectors, this is possible, uh, such as education, sanitation, uh, and certain sectors, it's not possible, uh, given that government may not have a role to play uh, in, in those sectors. But, but I think we, we are uh, been very uh, impressed with the openness of, of uh, our counterparts in the Indian government at a state and central level to, to really look to the civil society to, to make some of these changes. So a strong collaborative spirit, you would say, is actually... Definitely. I mean, I, 
I mean, when we started out in 99, I think it was sort of uh, NGOs and government both, I would say, saw themselves as adversaries. And, and I think in, in 2022, we definitely see many more sort of governments, you know, working with NGOs on the ground and realizing that NGOs have the ability to innovate and NGOs realizing governments have the ability to scale. And so I think there's, there's sort of a, a growing partnership. It needs to increase for sure. And we have lots of issues we need to solve, but, but it's definitely, I think, in the right trajectory. Yeah. Well, I like that the direction of travel is positive. Um, what are the key trends? Where, where, where are things heading in for the next 10 years? Like, what are the key things right now that you're, you're thinking that this is palpable and it's moving in this direction? And I can see that if Alberto and I are having a conversation in, in 2030, this is what it's going to look like. So, so I think that just the inequality gap has just widened globally. And like I said, uh, has uncovered issues, which were there before COVID, but for whatever reason, as a society, and not just in India globally, we just decided to, you know, turn the other direction and, and not worry about it. Um, and and so I, I hope, uh, and and this is you know two years into now, coronavirus and and COVID, and as we speak, Alberto, you also have Omicron. I had it a few weeks I ago. Do, it's yes, amazing that you have the energy that you do, and you're not coughing uh, as I was a few weeks ago, but. But, but I think it's, it's, it's realizing that we can't come back to sort of business as usual, like, um, like some of us may be able to do. I, I think we need to realize and have a much more deeper understanding of these sort of existing inequalities, realize that they've widened even more so, and, and really take a call on how are we then looking at those more hard to reach areas, hard to reach communities, uh, empowering them to make some of these decisions. Again, large donor agencies, as well as individuals, for example, sitting in the cities of India, uh, may not sort of fund groups that are, you know, 10 hours to get to. Uh, they may not sort of look at those areas. And those are the areas that both from an economic perspective has not seen growth and therefore from a socio-economic perspective, not many NGOs or funding or anything has gone there. And so I hope, 10 years from now, we'll see sort of a shift where we're funding a lot of these hard to reach areas and sort of with the more complex uh, solutions uh, that they that they require. And so, um, as I was telling you earlier, when, you know, in the last nine months, we've raised 10 million, distributed 150 organizations. We, we plan on continuing this year on year, supporting uh, 100 organizations a year giving them five-year commitments of unrestricted funding, uh, as well as capacity building support and creating a platform for others who may be sitting in cities, may be sitting in cities in India or even globally, for them to connect directly with these organizations, support them, and be more thoughtful or enlightened givers for them. And, and, and we hope then even the cycle of funding shifts then from a three-year to maybe a five-year, and, and again, trust-based philanthropy. So NGOs will be recommending other NGOs here, and really, I guess, documenting this process a little bit more uh, that we can show to the world, this actually works, and this should be a percentage of how you give, if not 100% of how you give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And developing a very nice track record. How did you... Um... How did you get into all of this? I know you were Morgan Stanley a long time ago, and um, how did it all play out? Yeah, so um, you're right. That's uh, I was at Morgan Stanley. Uh, that's where I met my wife, Nira, and we started this together, both sort of as little analysts in, in the 1585 Broadway office in Times Square. 
but we sort of connected, I guess, uh, as analysts that both of us actually had volunteered in India and, and before starting at Morgan Stanley. So I'd worked with uh, an urban project here in Mumbai, focusing on street children living in and around a train station. Nira actually uh, had volunteered with a rural organization focusing on women's livelihoods. And it was through sort of, I guess, those um, past relationships we had with these communities that we realized, that, number one, they were teaching us far more than what we thought we would teach them. Resilience, inspiration, work ethic, all came from them. And we were just amazed on how every day they woke up and, and tried to lift themselves and their families out of poverty without saying, oh, so-and-so didn't do this for me, or I didn't have this, or you know, there were no excuses. They, 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 they just were on it day in and day out. And so I think that experience really helped ground us, number one, helped us realize that actually the magic is with them, not the other way around. And then I think working at Morgan Stanley and my wife then went on to Harvard Business School and then um, sort of joined a few years later, but really it was saying that how do we bring some of these skills to these groups. Um, and, and, and I think that's sort of how we started out and, and continue and, and uh, really, because I, I think it's that deep humility for those who we are serving, realizing they're far better at lifting themselves out of poverty than we are. But there may be aspects of what they're trying to do that we can help support, enabling them to achieve their dreams. And I feel if that's the sort of mandate that all givers sort of come in at, we probably will have a you know equitable society sooner rather than later. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, tell me, do you have a uh, key takeaway you'd love to share with the audience before we wrap up today? Is there one thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think listen, be humble, and realize that whether you're a donor or to a certain extent even an NGO worker, it's the communities that are doing the heavy lifting. And so really it's up to us to serve them uh, and do whatever they need. Uh, for them to be successful, not the other around. And I think in the development sector, many times, whether we're NGOs or donors, sometimes we think it's us that are doing all the great work and we're the ones who, you know, deserve the accolades or, or make decisions. But reality, that's not the case. The heavy lifting is the communities we serve. And, and I think if you keep that in mind always, then you will make the right decisions. Love it. They've all, thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure and, uh, and a learning experience as well. And I wish you continued success with your, with your work. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Deval Sangvi, co-founder of Dasra. For information about this episode and 150 other interviews with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you haven't done so already. Do leave us a rating and a review. It makes a big difference. And thanks very much. As always, I appreciate it, and I look forward to catching up with you next week.